right, so continuing with James, and we took a couple of weeks off to, um, well, to deal with the cross and Jesus' death and the resurrection. And today we pick back up talking about how do we plug into the power of the resurrection. It's, I mean, it is the perfect picking up spot again from not just James part seven, but for, you know, going on from the resurrection, what does that mean for us in our lives? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, I pray that you will begin to understand how incredibly great his power is to help those who believe him. It is that same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead. So what Paul is saying is the same power that brought Jesus out of that tomb is available to you and me in our everyday lives to help us. To help us become people that, that we never dreamed we'd be able to become. To help us to move into a future we never dreamed we'd be able to move into. To stop doing things we never thought we could stop doing. To start doing things we never thought we could start doing. All of those things that are so important to us, along with the meaning and the joy and the peace and the satisfaction that comes with living the life you were designed to live, all of that, the power of the resurrection is available to help you achieve those things. But there's this sort of three-pronged approach that the Bible is constantly bringing up. That if you're missing one of them, it's like a tripod without one leg. You know, it's wobbly. It's, it's unbalanced. Or if, you know, you picture a, a, a plug being plugged into a, an electrical outlet. It's like if, if one, of those, one of those prongs is gone, you're in trouble, right? So James is going to share with us this three-pronged approach to... The power of God being poured into our lives, the blessings of God raining down into our lives, all of these things that, uh, that living the life that he designed us to live brings. And so with all that in mind, we come to today's section of the book of James, James chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means... Caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now there, James gives us three prongs. Um, and we're going to kind of unpack that as we go through the rest of this lesson uh, to try to see, okay, so what, what is it that leads to the power of God being unleashed in my life? So three observations about the power of God being unleashed in my life. The first observation is this. The power of God flows from being into doing. Okay. If not the other way around. And it's a subtle distinction, but it's a really important one in my mind. Uh, it doesn't flow from what I do, and that then informs who I am. It's who I am flows, flowing from that then comes what I do. And then the power of God comes in to give me the ability to do those things that he's asking me to do. Growing up, if you had asked me, Ed, are you a Christian? I would have said something like, well, I hope so. I hope I've done enough, right? I hope I've done enough of the good stuff to be a Christian. I hope I haven't done so much of the bad stuff that I can't be considered a follower of Jesus anymore. I hope I am. Or are you going to heaven, Ed? I would have said, well, I hope so. I hope I've done it. You know, and it always came back to that concept of, I hope I've done enough. And it is just backwards from the way that the writers of the Bible continually try to get us to see how things how, what reality is. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. Now let's stop right there for a second. I'm sorry. Great. I feel so bad for those guys back there in the booth. They have no idea what I'm going to do next. And so uh, thank you, Greg. I appreciate it. Uh, see, what, what Paul is saying here is it, God's power, even the power to save you, especially the power to save you, doesn't flow from what you do into who you are. It's the other way around. It flows from who you are, and then it moves into what you do. He goes on, it, you know, just so that we don't start thinking, oh, then what I do isn't really important. No, the next words out of Paul's mouth, or off of Paul's pen, if you want to say it that way, is he says, it's not from you, so nobody can boast about it. And then he goes on, he says, for we are God's masterpiece. And he has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the things that he planned for us long ago. See, what we do is important, but don't ever get the idea that our identity or the power of God flows from what I do into who I am. It goes the other way. And like I said, it's a subtle distinction, but it is a really important one. And Paul says before, well, he says long ago, God planned for us to do these things. Now, that means that if you're here today, God knew you were coming. You know, to this church too. But I mean, I'm talking about your existence on earth. There are no illegitimate children. Everybody that's here, God knew was coming. Now, some of us may have been a complete surprise to our parents. We were not a surprise to God. God knew you were going to be here. He made plans for in partnership with him, how he would change you. And then in turn, how that would change the world around you. And so it, we need to remember that. That it flows from who we are into what we do and not the other way around. James puts it like this in James 1 verse 25. He says, if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you carefully look into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. What does it mean? That if you don't do what the Bible says, you're like a person that looks in the mirror and then walks away and immediately forgets what you look like. I mean, that seems like a strange thing to say, right? Well, I mean, what does that even mean? What is that? E what is he even talking about? Well, I don't know what you use a mirror for. Most people use a mirror to tell them the truth about their appearance, right? That's one thing. You can look. You can ask your friends, "Do I have something in my teeth?" But if they want to have a good time and you got a great big piece of spinach, they'll be like. No, nothing's in your teeth. You're good, you know. But the mirror, the mirror will always tell you the truth, right? You wake up in the morning, you look at the mirror. It's wild, isn't it? It's like you've spent, if you're lucky, eight hours in bed. You, that's all you've done is lay there. But you look in the mirror, you're like, everything is messed up, right? Everything. Your hair, I mean, my hair is doing things. I couldn't make my hair do those things if I spent an hour trying to make my hair do those things. And I'm like, how does that even happen? You know, you got stuff in your eyes. Your breath stinks. You, you've got all these things that you've got to take care of. That's what a mirror is for, right? Same thing with the Bible. The Bible, you look at it, and it shows you who you are and what you need to change. And then you go off, and you try to remember what you saw and put into practice your memory of, of, of what this mirror of the Bible told you is the reality of your condition, I guess you could say. And I think what James is saying is, if you're not able to put into practice the things that the Bible is asking you to put into practice, it's not because you're not strong enough. It's because you've forgotten who you are. Now, this isn't to say that you will never, this isn't to say that you'll ever be perfect. 
This isn't to say that there won't be, ever be times where you open up the Bible and go, ooh. You know, God, we are all a work in progress. And we will all be a work in progress until we get to, until we see Jesus face to face is what the Bible says. And at that point, we will be like him. But until then, you open up the Bible, you, it is going to give you something to work on. It is going to show you the reality of who you are. And sometimes that hurts. But what God is looking for, you don't have to wait for perfection in an area before the power of God flows into your life. You just have to get on that road saying, this is the direction I want to go. And it may be two steps forward and three steps back and then one step forward and two steps back. But it's all God is really concerned about is that you are, is that you're marching forward. And if you do that, he will pour his power into your life in ways that you never dreamed were possible. But it, it takes remembering who I am and then letting what I do flow from that. And if you don't do that, if you do it the other way around, then the Bible becomes a rule book, right? The Bible becomes a legal code. And if all the Bible is for you is a rule book or a legal code, it will become crushing and you will be filled with despair and frustration and confusion. And you'll think, why can't I do, why can't I be better? Why can't I do the things that I can't do? It will just crush you. It'll leave you feeling kind of like this. All right, look, I get it. Okay, my last job, I had to beg rich guys for money all the time. And you're right, and it makes you feel all low and pathetic, but you gotta do it. You gotta put yourself out there. Or you're never gonna get the grant, you're never gonna get the job. You're never gonna get the girl. Like, like that one? Really, is that all you guys think about? In other words, she's out of your league. Oh, <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, she's out of everyone's league, thank you. You should go talk to her. You guys want me to go over there and ask her out? You know, yeah, yeah, go. You know, are we looking at a teachable moment? Sure. You're so inspiring. <laughs> right. <laughs> but remember, this is going to be harder than anything you guys are going to ask for today. Yeah, we'll keep that in mind. Okay. Hey, Gwen. <laughs> I need you to slap me hard. Um, like I said, something offensive to you. Um. Uh, okay. Who is going to look bad here, though? You, you, you or me? Oh, no, definitely me. Okay. Well, it's just, um, I can't just slap you out of nowhere. It's not to say something to me. Okay, you need, you need to get in character? Okay. Yes, I got it. Um, <clears throat> I think women are all horrible teachers. Mm-hmm, not bad. Keep going. Okay, all school funding should be slashed. All the heroes in the school system are really the politicians. They deserve all the credit. <laughs> and girls doing math? I mean, really? <laughs> oh! oh! <laughs> Yes, I like it. Thank you. Oh. All right. You see? Somehow I survived. Oh. Ever feel like that when you've opened up the Bible and looked at it and been like, oh, and then felt worse when you weren't able to live up to what it says in those pages? You know, yeah, God wants you to move forward. He wants you to be better next year than you are right now. He wants you to be more loving. He wants you to be more accepting. He wants you to be more forgiving. He wants you to be more patient. All of those things. But we've all got strengths and weaknesses, right? And sometimes those weaknesses, you feel like they're just not going to get better. But the key... See, here's what happens to me. I've got... I mean. I know it's going to be a shock for you to hear this, but I've got weaknesses. And I will open up the Bible sometimes, and I will read through there, and it's like a, 
like a flashing neon sign every time I read something that has to do with one of my weaknesses. And it's almost like, is that all that God can think about? Well, no. No, it's not all that he can think about. But if I don't remember where I'm, where I'm weak, it's like, have you ever seen those pictures of those bodybuilders that are all arms and chest and they got no legs? And it says, you know, don't forget leg day, you know, stuff like that. Where they're all legs, you know, they like working out their legs, but they're like, you know, scrawny on top. It's sort of, that's, you don't want to be the physical or the spiritual personification of that kind of a thing. God wants you to get stronger in your strengths, but he also wants you to be working on your weaknesses. And if you forget who you are, you'll never be able to live up to what it says in that book. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, the Bible says, everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says, it's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Part of the overall purpose he is working out in everything and everyone. And so you've got to come to this book to figure out who you are and what you are doing here. And then that will give you the ability to move forward in your life in the areas that you never thought you would. Okay, so if that's so important, then here's the second question. Then who am I, right? Okay, if, if, if everything, if God's power flows from who I am into what I do, then who am I? And no matter where you read in the Bible, no matter what you look at, you will get the same message over and over and over again. I am radically fallen and I am infinitely loved. I am fatally flawed, but I am treasured and valued by the creator of the universe. I am so messed up that nothing short of the blood of God's own son could save me, but I am so loved, valued, and treasured that he would, he, both he and his son were more than willing to pay that price for me. That's what you will find from the Old Testament until the very last page of the New Testament, over and over and over again. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Now Isaiah is writing about 800 years before Jesus would be born. And he is writing about what will happen to Jesus and what people will think when they see him going through all those things that we just went, talked about two weeks ago with the cross and the crucifixion and, and his execution. And this is what he writes. He says, we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. What is that saying? It is saying that you are so messed up that nothing short of the, of, of the sacrifice of his own son could save you, and yet he was more than willing to do it for you. You are fatally flawed and infinitely loved. Over and over and over in the Bible you will find this. In the Sermon on the Mount, it is the most influential speech that has ever been given in the history of this world. It is the speech that launched Jesus' movement here on earth, a speech that launched a movement that has changed the world in ways that nothing else has changed the world over the last 2,000 years. And it didn't start with all the movers and shakers and upper crust of first century society. It started with the dregs. It, the Bible describes who these people are that have been flocking to Jesus. They are the demon-possessed, the sick, the poor, the hungry, the people who don't know where else to turn. 
And they flock to Jesus. And after he has healed them and cast out their demons and fed them and loved them, then he sits them down on the side of this mountain and he starts to teach them. Now, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 is where the Sermon on the Mount is found. It is like the companion volume to James. The book of James is a book about how to live a life, this three-pronged approach to life of justice, not taking advantage of people, even if you can. That's what justice is. It's not, it's, it's not letting the powerful trample on the weak. It's, so it's about justice, it's about compassion, and it's about integrity. All three of those things you will find coming up over and over in James. All three of those things you will find coming up over and over and over in the pages of the Sermon on the Mount. But before he starts explaining to these people, this is what you need to do. Right? When it comes to how you treat your enemies, the people that make your life really hard. How do you deal with them? How do you deal with the things that you think about? Your integrity, right? Your thoughts, your, your actions, your emotions, your attitudes. How do you deal with people that, that need your help, that need your generosity? How do you do that? That's what the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will be about. But before he gets to that, he, he sort of introduces. He, the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount is so weird. You have this thing called the Beatitudes which is like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, I mean, he just, it's like all these weird categories of people that you're like, why would they be blessed? And that's exactly what these people who are sitting out there that day are wondering. It's like Jesus, it's like he's speaking to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's these people. Nobody's ever told them they were blessed before. But here Jesus, it's like he's throwing them out. Blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. He's, 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 he is solidifying their identity before he moves on and tells them, this is what you need to do. Then he goes into this weird section about salt and light. In Matthew 5.13, he says to them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, salt was more than just about seasoning in the first century. Um, that's what we use it for. In the first century, it was the only preservative that they knew. It was the only thing that could stop or at least slow down rot and decay in their world. And so it was one of the most valuable commodities on the face of the planet. Wars were fought over salt. Roman soldiers were oftentimes paid in salt, which is where we get the word salary. Uh, their habit of salting their leafy green vegetables to keep them from rotting is where we get the word salad. It's like this, this was an important commodity in the first century. It was a preservative. And when Jesus says to them, you are the salt of the earth, this, this ragtag band of misfits, the losers of first century society, he's saying, you guys, you are the thing that is going to slow down the rot and decay that is destroying this world. Nobody would ever talked to these people like that before. You're the light of the world, he says. They're like, how could, we, how could we ever be salt and light? And then Jesus explains to them what a salt and light lifestyle looks like. But he wants them to understand, this is who you are. Now this will give you the power to do the things that I'm about to tell you what to do. It always flows from who I am into what I do. And no matter where you go in the Bible, you will see this concept coming up over and over and over again. Adam and Eve in the garden. I never used to see God's grace and his, his, uh, his, their identity and how, what they do is supposed to flow from that and what happens when we don't. I don't have time to get into that story right now, 
I deal with it a lot in the devotionals this week. So if you're curious about that, pick it up and, and take it with you when you leave. I think it's Tuesday or Wednesday that I talk about that. But there's another story in the Old Testament that even more clearly to me illustrates this. And it's in Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, God is entering into what is called a covenant with a man named Abram. And Abram, his name would eventually become Abraham. Abram means father. Abraham means father of many. Well, he's like in his 90s. He doesn't have any kids. And God comes to him and says, you're going to have so many descendants that you, you won't be able to count them. You will be the father of many nations. You will, you will have more, more descendants than there is stars in the sky. And he says, and I'm going to give you all of this land that you are standing on right now. And Abram says, well, how... How do I know that's going to happen? And so God enters into what was called a covenant. Now, a covenant was a very familiar thing to the people of the ancient world. A covenant was sort of like a contract, but it was between a party that was super powerful and a much less powerful party. So it's like if you were like Egypt and you were strong and there was some little tiny country over there that needed your help, you would enter into a covenant with them. And covenants would always contain sort of the same components. It would be like, there would be the statement, uh, you know, this is who the, the big powerful party is. The, the, it would be like, I am, well, and read Genesis 15 when you get home. You will see how a covenant works. God says, I am, I am the Lord God, the creator of the universe. Here are the things that I've done for you. Here are the things that I'm going to do for you. Then the covenant would always have then the, the stipulations, the requirements of the covenant that the, the weaker party had to live up to in order for the more powerful party to actually do what was contained in the covenant. And then they would do this really weird thing. They, it was called the blood path. And they would take animals and they would sacrifice them and they would hack them into pieces and they would lay them on both sides of this path. And then the less powerful party would walk the blood path. In essence saying, if I break my side of the covenant, then I understand this is what will happen to me. I will be killed. I will be cut into a million pieces. I understand that. This is what will happen to me if I break the covenant. In Genesis chapter 15, they, God and Abram go through all of the same, all of the typical uh, components of a covenant. And then at the end, when Abram is supposed to walk the blood path, God pushes him to the side and look at what happens in uh, Genesis chapter 15, verses 17 through 18. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord God made a covenant with Abram that day. What is going on? Well, the fire pot and flaming torch is sort of an image of God. He uses it several times in the Old Testament. What is happening here is God is saying to Abram, I will walk the blood path for you. I know you will never be able to live up to the terms of the covenant. Your descendants will never be able to live up to it. So Abram, when they fail to live up to the terms of this covenant, I will pay the price. You see it over and over and over in the stories of the Old Testament, in the stories of the New Testament. And it's so important that we remember that's our identity. Your identity will determine everything about how you live your life. Let's go back and watch that video now, Greg. I 
I enjoy the challenge of medicine. Naturally, you would have no idea what it's like to have someone's life depending on you. Well, I have this neighbor. A joke. Do you have any idea what it feels like to save someone's life? Is there anything like hitting a homer in softball? Because <laughs> I hit a whopper last week. What was the doctor date? Well, I died on the table. She <laughs> spent an hour and a half making me feel like if I don't save lives, I'm worthless. Well, you know, she's very focused. Dermatology is her life. Dermatology? Yes, she's a dermatologist. Saving lives? The whole profession is, I just put some aloe on it. Where are you going on your next date with her? Oh, uh, what's the point? Well, you're gonna hash up a wonderful opportunity to put that aloe pusher in her place? Revenge date? That, that sounds more like you than me. This could be so sweet, Jerry. Saving lives? She's one step above working on the Clinique counter. <laughs> Dermatologist. Skin doesn't need a doctor. Of course not. Wash it, dry it, move on. You're right. I'm going to call her up right now and tell her off. No, 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 no. This has to be carefully orchestrated. You go to a fancy dinner. Flowers. Flowers? Yeah, you got to do it classy. So you've done this? Almost. Couldn't get the girl to go out with me a second time. Restaurants, flowers, this is so nice. Well, I'm a classy guy. How's the life-saving business? It's fine. It must take a really, really big zit to kill a man. He's with you. You call yourself lifesaver. I call you Pimple Popper MD. <laughs> Mr. Perry, how are you? I just want to thank you again for saving my life. She saved your life? I had skin cancer. Skin cancer? I got to ask you, how did the revenge date go? Uh, we went okay. Did you dress nice? Did you do it classy? Yeah, I started out real classy. Yeah, you did. You classed it up. Huh? But then I found out about the skin cancer. Oh, so it backfired. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I guess I'm lucky I never tried that myself. Of she treats skin cancer. That's how I met her. She was doing a skin cancer screening at Peterman. This is what dermatologists do. Sadly, that knowledge could have helped me. <laughs> And the knowledge of who you are will help you to live the life that God has designed you to live, the things that you've never been able to make progress in. And that leads us to our third and final point, which is I am to lean to the left and the right. And I don't really have time to get into this too much. I can see the kids, uh, my, the teachers back there are pulling their hair out a little bit. But I'll just tell you this, all right? I, I, you can pick up the devotionals. I talk a lot more about it in there. What God is looking for, they're not really pulling their hair out. I was just kidding. But, but I, I know that they're sitting there thinking, is he done yet? All right. So anyway, um, what we oftentimes do is we focus on one or the other of the aspects of these three prongs, right? We either like think, okay, I'm a person of justice, in which case compassion is kind of hard. Or we think I'm a person of, person of compassion, in which case justice is really hard. Or I'm a person, you know, it's like we neglect integrity. Or we, you know, it's like, and what James is saying is don't neglect any of those things. All three are really important. In James chapter 1, verse 27, he says this. He says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. The rest of the book of James will be about one of those three things. Justice, compassion, 
or integrity. And if you fall down on one of those, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about saying, ah, I'm just not even going to bother with that. If you fall down and say that about one of those three prongs, it is like cranking back the power flowing into your life. And when you say, okay, I'm going to get started on this, even if you're just starting, it is like opening it up full board. And God will pour his power, his blessings, his presence, his knowledge, his wisdom into your life in a way that you never dreamed was possible. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your love and for the fact that Jesus came to this earth to reach out. Even for those of us who the rest of the world thinks that you know, we're a lost cause. So Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to be people who reach out in the same way. That as we reach out to others, that they reach out to us, and together we can grow in justice, compassion, and integrity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.